Uh, that song wrecks me every time we sing it. The blood of Jesus washes me. I love that song. I was teasing Brian and Kim Tabor last night or yesterday afternoon before Saturday night church saying, you know, there's these churches all over the country that, that try to schedule them to come to their church to lead worship and schedule them weeks in advance. I told, I said to pay you large amounts of money. They laughed at that. And here we have you every week. What a blessing it was to have Brian and Kim lead us in worship. Let's just show our appreciation for them. Appreciate them so much. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name's Chris Philbeck. I'm the senior pastor here. We've been working our way, as I mentioned earlier, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been doing it since November of 2016. We've taken some breaks along the way, but we're committed to finishing this study from start uh, to finish. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Matthew because two weeks ago we celebrated Easter, and then last week I shared a standalone message that just talked about how we can engage people who are a long way from God in spiritual conversations. And so as we open our Bibles up this morning, let's take just a minute for review. We opened to Matthew chapter 21, and we're in the final week of Jesus's life. Matthew 21 begins with the triumphal entry, and the next thing that's recorded to Jesus goes to the temple, and He clears the temple of all those who are buying and selling there. He curses a fig tree. And then religious leaders come to him angry, demanding that he tell them by what authority that he does the things that he's been doing. Now, I told you that one of the nuances of Matthew's gospel, I told you this a few weeks ago, one of the nuances of Matthew's gospel is that he consolidates some of the events of the last week of Jesus' life like they all happened on the same day, but they don't. And if you look at the Last week of Jesus, from the perspective of all four of the Gospels, you get a more accurate timeline. And so, when we open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 33, which is where we're going to begin in a moment, it's Wednesday on the last week of Jesus' life. That means that He is two days away from His death. And He's in the temple. He's in the temple, and this is the very same temple that he has just cleared the day before. And while he's in the temple, it's there that these religious leaders come to him and demand that he tell them where he gets his authority to do the things that he does. Now, because of the way Matthew records the last week of Jesus' life, I included this conversation Jesus has with the religious leaders in the last message I preached from the Gospel of Matthew. It was a message called The Danger of Hypocrisy, and I talked about three specific dangers that is, are associated with hypocrisy. And the last one, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the last one is inquiry without integrity, saying that you want to know the truth, but deep down inside, you don't because your mind is already made up. And we see that in this conversation with these religious leaders. Let me just remind you. They come to Him, and they demand that He tells them where He gets His authority. And <clears throat> Jesus basically says, well, before I answer your question, let me ask you a question. If you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And Jesus' question was, John's baptism, where does it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And this is what Matthew records. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, He will ask, then why didn't you believe Him? That's John the Baptist, by the way. But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And there is the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Inquiry, we want to know the truth from you, but no integrity because they've already made their minds up about Jesus. It doesn't really matter what he says. They believe that they've already got Jesus completely figured out. And so Jesus responds by saying, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things 
things. And it appears that that's where their conversation ends, but it's not. Because right after that, Jesus launches into a trilogy of parables. The first is the parable of the two sons, the second is the parable of the tenants, and the third is the parable of the wedding banquet. Now, I'm going to talk to you about the parable of the tenants today, but let me first just summarize the parable of the two sons. I'll read a portion of it in just a moment. The first parable Jesus talks about says that there was a man who had two sons, and he told both of his sons to go work in the vineyard. The first son says no right away, but then sometime later he relents and goes and works in the vineyard. The second son immediately says yes, but he never goes. He never goes to the vineyard to work. And so Jesus asks this question, this is Matthew 21, 31, which of the two did what his father wanted? And the religious leaders said, the first. And here's Jesus' response beginning in the latter part of verse 31. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you for John, again, John the Baptist, came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Now, here's the meaning of what Jesus is saying. He's saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes, which, by the way, were the outcasts of Jewish society. That's what we need to remember. They were at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to Jewish society. He's saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes are like the first son because there was a time when everything in their lives said no to God. But when John came along, John the Baptist, and he came along with a message from God, they listened, they believed, and they turned their lives around. Initially, they said no to God. Everything about their lifestyle said no to God, but ultimately, they believed the message that came through John, and they said yes. They're like the first son who said no, but then relented and went to work in the vineyard. In contrast, the religious leaders are like the second son who said he would obey his father but never did. These religious leaders claimed to be living in obedience to God, but they never really submitted to the revelation of God or the will of God. And the greatest demonstration of that fact is seen in their rejection of Jesus. Now, listen to me, friends. When the religious leaders came to Jesus initially and asked him or demanded that he tell them where he gets his authority, they were angry. Do you think they're even more angry now? And it's about to get worse. So if you've got your Bible open to Matthew 21 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture this morning. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to begin in verse 33, and I'm going to read down through verse 46. You follow along. Listen to another parable. So this is parable number two of the three. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew He was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest Him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that He was a prophet. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Remember, Jesus' favorite method of teaching was parables, parable from the Greek word parabole, which literally means the placing of one thing beside another. And so a parable, first and foremost, was an illustration. When these religious leaders came to Jesus in anger, demanding to know where His authority came from, He seized the opportunity to bring a scathing indictment on them, not just for the way they had rejected the prophets, not just for the way they had rejected John the Baptist, but for the way they had rejected Him. Look back at the very first part of verse 33. This is how Jesus begins parable number two. Listen to another parable. You know, there are multiple words in the Greek language, which is the original, original language of the New Testament, that are translated another, but there are two are, that are more common than the others. There's the Greek word alas, which means another of the exact same kind, and there's the Greek word heteros, which means another of any kind. And so, if I were to walk down uh, from the platform, and I would look at J.D. down here, and I'd say, give me another Bible, and I use the word alas, I'm telling him, give me another Bible exactly like the one I already have. This is a 1984 edition of the NIV Bible. It's the Quest Study Bible. They don't make them anymore, so you'd be in a bad place. But I would be saying, give me one exactly, exactly like the one I already have. If I said, give me another Bible, and I use the Greek word heteros, I would be saying, just give me any Bible, any other Bible. It doesn't matter. Any Bible will do. You could run out there and get one of those Bibles off the shelf that we used to call the pew Bibles. Anybody remember pews? Still mourning the loss of pews? If you are, don't raise your hand, please, whatever you do. <laughs> any Bible will do. When we get to verse 33, and Jesus says, listen to another parable, He's using the word alas. Listen to another parable just like the first one that I told you. Have you ever been in a serious or heated discussion with someone and you are letting them know exactly how you feel and, man, it is just flowing out of you? You are not even pausing to take a breath. You're on a roll. And then you pause and it seems like you're finished and the other person has a sigh of relief because they think that you're over, that it's done. And then you, after a pause, say, and another thing. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Jesus is just getting started. And so he tells this parable about a landowner who planted a vineyard, something that everyone listening could understand and relate to. And this landowner puts a lot of work into this vineyard. He puts a wall around it. He digs a wine press. He builds a watchtower. And what that means is he went to great lengths to do two things. Number one, to make sure the vineyard was protected. That was the main purpose of the wall and the watchtower. Number two, to make sure that the vineyard was productive. That was the purpose of the wine press. A wine press is where harvested grapes could be turned into juice. The main point that Jesus is making is that the landowner was deeply invested in this vineyard. He did everything right, and once the vineyard is completed, he rents it out 
to some local farmers, to some tenants, and then he goes away on a journey. That was not uncommon in Jesus' day. The landowner built this vineyard as an investment property. He was an entrepreneur. Everything about this story is very common, and the religious leaders, along with everyone else in the temple, would have understood everything Jesus was saying. Now we get to verse 34. It says, when the harvest season approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit, literally in the original language, to collect the fruit of it. It was time for the landowner to be paid, whether it came in fruit, in grapes, whether it came in money, it didn't really matter. It was time for the landowner to be paid, and that sets off a series of unthinkable events. Verses 35 and 36, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. What these tenants do to these servants is unthinkable. Jesus says they beat one. The word that he uses in the original language means literally that they scourged him and they flayed him. They laid him open. They beat him until he was bloody and raw, probably within an inch of his life. And then Jesus says they killed another and stoned a third. Why does he draw the distinction between the two? Why doesn't he just say, and then they killed the other two? And the reason why is because when Jesus said they killed another, it means that they killed him immediately. I don't know how they did it. They slit his throat. They chopped off his head. They killed him immediately. It happened just like that. And then they stoned the third, and that means they killed him slowly. They literally crushed the life out of him, crushed the breath out of his lungs over a period of time. And so what does the landowner do? He sends even more servants who were treated in the exact same way. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. Put yourself in the place of this landowner. Do you think that's something you would do? If you sent three representatives, three people that you had some level of a relationship with, to tenants to collect what was owed you, and they were beaten, and they were executed, and they were stoned, do you think you would turn around and just send more, hoping and expecting that there would be a different outcome? If it were me, I would have had two emotions. I would have been heartbroken to learn what had happened to those three servants, and then I would have been furious. How about you? There have been a handful of times over the years when someone on my staff will come and tell me about the way someone in church has approached them and mistreated them and unfairly and unkindly criticized them. And it's always so upsetting to me that I say to the people when they tell me that, if that ever happens again, you let me know And as a result, I've had some very direct conversations with people in this church about the way they treat our staff. Because I'm not going to sit back and let people that I love be mistreated. How about you? Would you do that? So at this point, it's hard to understand the logic of the landowner. But we look back at verses 37 through 39. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Interestingly enough, the word Jesus uses for respect there when he says they will respect my son is the Greek word entrepo. It literally means to turn about. And the idea that you can see in the mind of the landowner is surely when my son shows up and they know who he is, they'll respect him enough to turn themselves around and change their behavior. But they didn't. Jesus said that when they saw him, they knew who he was. 
And because they knew who he was, they murdered him in a deliberate, calculated, and premeditated way because they thought if we get rid of him, the son, the heir, that will be the end of all of this and we'll control everything in this vineyard. So they murdered him. Now let's just pause for a minute and try to imagine what those religious leaders and all those other people who were listening to this parable in the temple were thinking as they heard Jesus' story. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus had their interest? Absolutely he did. There's no question that he did, and that becomes really clear when he asks a question that seems to bring the parable to an end. In verse 40, he says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And those smug, self-righteous religious leaders are the very first ones to speak up, and in verse 41, they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And while it might seem Jesus is finished now, He's just getting started. Because beginning in verse 42, he says, Have you never read in the Scriptures, you who claim to be so close to God, you who spend so much time pouring over the Scriptures, have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, I want to make the explanation of that as simple as possible. Jesus is quoting directly from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, when he talks about the stone that the builders rejected. When builders in Jesus' day wanted to build a building, they needed what was called a cornerstone. My NIV Bible calls it a capstone, but we're talking about a cornerstone. Maybe your Bible uses the word cornerstone. And the cornerstone would be the most important stone in the building for multiple reasons. First of all, because it was essential for a stable foundation. It was also essential for supporting the roof. It was essential for setting the angles for the walls. It was essential for the overall uniformity of the building. The bottom line was if you were building a building and the cornerstone wasn't right, the building wouldn't be right. And so Jesus Again, quoting directly from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, talks about a stone the builders rejected initially that ultimately, in the end, became the cornerstone. What's he talking about, friends? Well, honestly, he's talking about two things. We only have time to talk about one in any level of detail. But just to be thorough, first of all, he's talking about the nation of Israel in fact, that is the historical meaning of those words in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, because over the years, the empire builders of the world have ignored Israel as being insignificant and being unimportant, and so they have, a, in a sense, thrown Israel away. But the Bible teaches us that God's plan is for Israel to be the cornerstone of redemptive, of the redemptive history, rather, of the world, and that's why Israel is still around today in spite of so many of their enemies being involved in so many efforts to try to destroy them. But second, and most important in this context, Jesus is talking about himself. I'm going to put some words up on the screen from Acts chapter 4. It's going to be verses 10 through 12. But let me just set the context for those verses. In Acts chapter 3, after the day of Pentecost and 
the church has been planted there. The first church has begun in Jerusalem. Peter and John are going up to the temple, and on the way up to the temple, you probably remember the story, they encounter a lame man who is begging. And Peter fixes his gaze on this lame man, and excuse me for this, but this is how I memorized this in, uh, when I was a boy from the King James Version of the Bible. This is before the NIV Bible came along. Peter looked at him and said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and what? Walk. And that's exactly what happened. This man who had been lame, that everybody was familiar with, who had been seated at the temple for how, who knows how long, begging because he was lame, is now walking. In fact, he went walking and leaping and praising God. And the temple was a busy place. Hundreds, if not thousands of people would have been there. And they all gathered around to see and to find out what was going on. And so what does Peter do when a crowd gathers? Well, he starts to preach. And who is the subject of Peter's message? Jesus. And that got the attention of the authorities that were there because they think they have put to end finally and forever any kind of preaching about Jesus when they murdered him on a cross. And so they gather up Peter and the disciples, they throw him in jail. The next day, they bring him out before the religious leaders. And listen to me, friends, some of the religious leaders that were there with Peter and the other disciples were the exact same religious leaders that Jesus is talking to in Matthew chapter 21. And they demand, just like the religious leaders in Matthew 21, they demand an explanation. And the Bible says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what he said to them. This is a part of what he said to them. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now listen to this. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, the cornerstone. And then he said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no, under name, no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. There's no other option. And listen to me now. Jesus' parable makes perfect sense. In the parable, the landowner is God. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders and those who blindly followed them. Those servants who were sent to collect the fruit, who were beaten and tortured and killed, are the prophets that came with the message of God. The son who was thrown out of the vineyard and killed is Jesus, and the vineyard itself is the sphere of God's blessing, which means the vineyard itself is the kingdom of God, and it makes sense. We understand it completely now. <laughs> Because Jesus is saying, God, the landowner, planted and prepared with great care this vineyard. And what was that vineyard? The kingdom of God. It was a place of salvation and a place of blessing and a place of promise. And then he rented it to tenants who hoarded and misused everything in it and every part of it to the point of robbing God, never, ever giving God, not for a moment, ever giving him any honor. They gave him nothing. And so God sent his prophets with a message and how were they treated? Tradition says that Isaiah the prophet was sawed in two. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and ultimately stoned. Zechariah was rejected and stoned. And if we had time, I could go on and on and on. The bottom line is the people would not listen. They would not hear the message of the prophets. And so finally, what does God the landowner do? He sends his son. And just in case there's any doubt in your mind, these tenets in this story that Jesus tells that represent the Jewish religious leaders and those who blindly followed him, they knew exactly who Jesus was. 
Matthew chapter 21 and verse 38, remember these words? It says, but when the tenants <clears throat> saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. These religious leaders knew who Jesus was. They had seen the miracles that he performed, and they had heard the words that he spoke, words unlike anything they'd ever heard before. But because they wanted to possess God's kingdom on their own terms, they killed him in a deliberate, calculated, and premeditated way, they murdered him. And now, these religious leaders know exactly who Jesus is talking about. They know he's talking about them. And so verses 45 and 46 say, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about him, about them rather. And what was their response? Verse 46, they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. What do we learn from this parable? What do we take away from this? I've written down three things, and I'm not going to spend hardly any time on any one of them, but you might want to write them down and think about these things. The first thing that we learn is we learn about the gracious patience of God. The gracious patience of God. I go back to the fact that the landowner in this story represents God. And when you first hear the story, you're amazed at how this landowner could keep sending servant after servant after servant, even though those who had gone before had been mistreated, tortured, beaten, killed, and stoned. And he continues to send servant after servant after servant, hoping for a different response or a different result. And when we read that, it made no sense. And we wondered, what in the world could he be thinking from a practical, pragmatic standpoint? What could he be thinking? But then when you realize that the landowner represents God, you understand. You see the gracious patience of a God who, as Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How could any of us not be moved by the heart of God who is that patient and who is that long-suffering with people who are lost? Who among us this morning has not had a moment in our lives when we've looked around at the reality of life in a sinful, fallen world and asked ourselves either internally or maybe we even said it out loud, how much longer is God going to allow this to happen? How much longer will we see the gracious patience of God? And that should all cause us to love him even more. The second thing we see is the courage and the commitment of Jesus. And I go back to verse 42, and Brian, you can come and we'll prepare to close. I go back to verse 42, and after Jesus has told the parable and after the religious leaders have responded that this is what the landowner should do, he should bring those wretches to a wretched end. And Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures these words, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We've already talked about this. I've already given you the explanation, but let's just acknowledge one thing together. Let's just make sure that we don't let the day go by without saying out loud this one thing. What's happening here is Jesus is standing in the temple 
Who knows how close he is to the religious leaders? Probably not far away, and he's looking at them directly in the face. They are looking at each other eye to eye, and Jesus is saying to them, I know what you're going to do. I know that you're going to kill me. But he's not trembling when he says it. He's just a matter of fact. And they think it's their idea. They think it's their cleverness. They think it's their plan. But it just reminds us of what I told you a few weeks ago when we began Matthew 21 with the triumphal entry. We need to remember, especially in the last week of his life, that there was never a moment in Jesus' life when the events of his life were out of his control. Never a moment. And Jesus is just saying, matter of fact, I know what you're going to do. There's no surprise here. I understand it completely. The third thing we learn is this. We learn the truth that judgment is the result of rejecting the redemptive plan of God. And maybe I should say it like this. We learn the truth that judgment is the only result, the only result of rejecting the redemptive plan of God. The redemptive plan of God is found in the story of Jesus, the story that we've been studying since November of 2016 as we've worked our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. The redemptive story of God is found in the redemptive story of Jesus. And that means when we reject Jesus, we redempt, we reject God's plan of redemption. And judgment is the only outcome of that. There's no other option, friends. You reject Jesus, you're opening the door to God's judgment. There's no other option. There's no other expectation. And when I've talked to you about judgment, I'm talking about a judgment unlike anything you and I have ever experienced or could ever even imagine. I've got my Bible open to Revelation chapter 20. Don't turn there. You might want to just take note of the reference. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. I want you just to listen as I read. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and, now, and books, note this, plural, books were opened. Another book, this time singular, one book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if you're going to appear at this throne, the great white throne, you have no hope. Hope is already gone. And when the Bible says that books were opened, books were opened that have your name and have a record of everything you ever did in your life. And if all your, 
All you're betting on is that you did enough good in your life to overcome your sin and be right with God, then you're going to be disappointed because nobody, no matter how good, no matter how moral, no matter how upright, no matter how gracious or benevolent or generous or any other word you can use, will ever be good enough on their own to be right with God. But then there's that one book, the book of life. And if your name is written in that book of life, because at some point in your life you came to the recognition of the fact that you're a sinner separated from God, there's nothing you can do about it on your own, but that's okay because God did something about it for you by sending his one and only son into the world to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for your sin, to satisfy God's need for justice with regard to your sin, and you surrendered your heart and your faith to Jesus in complete trust because of that, your name can be written in that book of life, and you don't have to fear any other thing that you've done in your life because that fact that your name is written in that book of life, that will always and forever be enough. And so the question is where will you stand? Where will your name be recorded? There is no hope, no reasonable expectation, no other option besides judgment if you reject Jesus. And this is not just for the religious leaders. This is for you and me today. This is for all of us. If you, for some reason, choose to believe that there's another way for you to be right with God apart from surrendering your life in complete faith and trust to Jesus, you are misguided. You are wrong. That's not my opinion. That is the truth of God's word. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. If you surrender your life in faith and trust to Jesus, and we can help you understand everything that that means because there's a gospel message that you need to hear and you need to understand. There are things that you need to do then your life can be right with God for all eternity.